Good morning, Theo 102. Good morning, Theo 102. Wow, it is weird to look yes. out at this auditorium right now, but we have the TAs here. You are Okay. You all are learning from a safe social distance. We're proud of you for following rules for safety. Rules for safety. Yes. Number one and number two. But stay away from everybody. <laughs> That's true. Is that but what we're doing now? Is this going to become a permanent I feature of American life? There we go. Uh, I, you know, well, I hope not because I'm an extrovert and this is painful for me. Mm. Yes, you introverts are probably having a lot of fun. Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm loving it. <laughs> Although here dream, we are. What are we doing? Dream here? world. Okay. Yes. But because the learning does not stop with Theo 102, we are committed to you. We told you at the very beginning of this that we are committed to you, that we will be with you through the end of this course. We will all get there together. We're all getting there together. And this week, we're going to continue with our phrase from last week, communion of saints, the communion yes. of saints. We're sticking with it because this is the finale of our four-part church history boot camp. And That's I'm so right. excited to get to the year 2020. Are we going to get to the year 2020? We're going to get there. Oh. I'm excited about this it. It's going to be amazing. Um, we'll introduce our speaker and recite the creed in a moment. I'm not sure if there's anything else that we want to say, except um, all of our introductions to all the videos are going to be right here from your familiar stage that That's you know right. and love. Um, and in fact, though, the videos may not actually be from up here on the stage. We're going to get anyone who can come to the stage to do the recording with our familiar visual tableau to do so. But if anyone can't, that's okay. We can make it work. I'll just splice the video together. We'll put it up there on the new YouTube channel, which I'm excited about just because I figured out how to make multiple YouTube channels now. That's pretty awesome. Look out, world. And equally awesome is the fact that you all can get credit for attending virtually by doing the reaction paper quiz, that's which right. we are super excited to say that 90% of you did it. Absolutely no problem. Yep. We know the rest of the 10% of you are just going to succeed Bounce the second back. time around we have faith we have faith. about 450 people did got through it 462 no, 462 with yes no we're so proud problem. of you so that's uh, that might even be more than 90 percent, 95 percent of the class so join your classmates in taking those and we'll cue you to do that after the lecture yes okay i'm going to introduce the lecture oh you should it's going to be you it's me so you should go behind okay, go behind okay. the stage okay. go, go behind the, you know the, go behind the curtain all right go I'm so excited for our, to introduce our lecture today. It is Dr. Leah Payne. You know her from this class, of course. Yeah, you can clap. Yeah. Okay. okay, that was good. That was good. No, not yet. We didn't recite the creed. Oh, we got to oh, do the oh, creed oh. recital thing. And I was going to say things about you. Dr. Leah Payne is, is an historian of contemporary American Christianity. She's an historian of the 19th and 20th century. She's super smart about things like what was happening economically and politically and socially in the United States in the 1800s and in the 1900s that basically made the American church what it is. She's an award-winning author. She's a great speaker. I'm so excited to have her out here. But before we bring her out, let's recite the creed up to where we are, communion of saints. Are you ready to do this with me? Do this from where you are. One of the TAs stood up, but the others did not. Like as though we were going to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, you can stand up. Just stand up. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, 
and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Leah Payne. What does it mean to be a Christian in the modern world? What does it mean to believe in the communion of saints in an era in the world that is so characterized by what we think of as disunity? That's the question that I wanna tackle for you all today. What does it mean to be a saint in the, in the modern world? And what does it mean to believe in the communion of saints in an era that is characterized, at least in Christianity and the history of Christianity, as an era of disunity and disunion. So first we're going to talk about what is the modern era? What are Christian responses in the early modern era? What are Christian responses in the Americas, in our current context? And then what does that mean when we, are, are we even able to, in light of that, say that I believe in the communion of saints? Now, just a hint, so you don't have to skip to the end to get to this part, I do still believe in the communion of saints, and I hope that by the end of this little segment, this lecture, you will too. So first, what is the modern world? Well, the modern era is maybe not what you're familiar with if you're like a, an art student, because if you think about what is modern art, that usually refers to something like in the late 19th, early 20th century. But when we're talking about the modern era, at least from a historical perspective, um, especially with church history, we're usually talking about something about like the 16th century, so the 1500s, uh, give or take a few years. And that era was characterized by a lot of change. Now, it's not the only era where there was technological innovation and exciting new things happening. Father Stephen talked a lot about that in his lecture. There are lots of new things happening in the Middle Ages, but the modern era combined a lot of things all together in such a way um, that created a really interesting blend of responses to the question of who is a saint what does it mean to be someone who's considered to be a saint? And what does it to mean to be in union with the saints? So um, in the early modern era, the 1500s um, and beyond, there were a few or uh, two responses that I want to highlight for you um, after we talk about what it means to be modern. So modernity, this is like a big word. Philosophers use it, theologians use it, historians use it. Usually, um, it's used to refer to this time when a ton of things are happening all at the same time. Globalization, there are trade routes and um, through uh, trade and war and uh, travel, the world is being connected in a way that it hadn't necessarily been before. So all corners of the world are getting in touch with each other, usually through commerce. Um, and that is leading to new connections and people are starting to to be exposed to ideas and people that they hadn't been connected to before. Key to this globalizing um, new reality was the development of new technologies that facilitated that. So 
There are all sorts of industry advances that made global travel um, and a number of other modern developments possible. So one example is this, there's a finery forge that um, improved the quality of iron that made docking technology better for ships. And so ships were able to go across the globe um, in ways that they hadn't gone uh, before to places they hadn't gone before. Um, so things like that made the world seem a little bit smaller to a lot of people. One of the most important and well-known technologies, of course, for Christians was the printing press. So printing press technology made it possible for the Bible to be um, more portable and less expensive than it ever had been before. Now, it's important to note that in the early modern era, Bibles still cost like several years wages. Um, so they were still quite expensive, like a mortgage payment. But the fact that they were more readily available and less expensive meant that people were interacting with the scriptures in new ways. Um, it promoted things like literacy and um, it led to this um, new way of doing Christian practice and Christian doctrine. The idea that more people um, could read and the Bible was more readily available to more readers. Um, another thing that happened in this period is what we what we call the Renaissance. So basically, um, the Renaissance was a revival of ancient Greek and Roman thought and art, literature, science, music, everything um, was changed by um, this new era. I like to think of the Renaissance um, as being kind of encapsulated in the person of Leonardo da Vinci. He was an artist, he was an inventor, he was um, a scientist, he was, you know, many, many things. Um, and this led to the rise of something that we call humanism. And basically, um, it's an appreciation uh, for and a love for logic and reason and a respect for um, human capacity and agency. It doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily associated with the secular or non-Christian. In fact, humanism in its early forms is a robustly Christian thing. Um, there were also new ways of doing philosophy and science and there's a rise in empiricism. So for those of you who are who are STEM people, sciencey types, um, this idea of the empirical method uh, was really popular or rose to popularity in this era. There was a rise in nationalism. So people started thinking of themselves, not necessarily in like these little feudal um, subjects of lords in a particular uh, part of the world. Instead, they started thinking of, of themselves by like national language and geography and culture group. Um, this was also the beginning of colonialism, which is basically an effort by um, certain European countries to go around the world and create miniature versions of themselves. And really that was to gain wealth and influence um, over other countries. One of um, the side effects of that, many times the colonizers brought with them the idea that their version of culture or language or whatever was inherently superior to the world that they encountered. One of the most sinful aspects of that was a wide wide-ranging um, enterprise known as slavery. So basically the idea of, of colonizers seeing people from other um, nationalities or other parts of the world and believing that they themselves were actually superior and that other people could be enslaved to work for them. Um, that became a huge theological crisis for um, Christians in the modern era and especially in the United States. Um, colonizers saw a lot of things that they didn't expect to see and they encountered people that they hadn't expected to encounter and it changed them. So all of these things um, ha were happening all at once. The world was getting bigger and smaller at once. It was an intense time of development and innovation and upheaval and the Protestant 
Reformation that we've been talking about and the Catholic uh, reformations and renewal efforts were all happening in this moment in time. So briefly, the, the Rome, Roman Catholic and uh, Protestant reforms and renewal efforts, um, they can be described in um, a, just a few little nutshells. And I will be giving those to you in part two of this lecture. So how does a Christian respond to the modern world? This was one of the most important questions facing Christians um, in the early modern period. And I wanna frame their response in the early modern era to this idea of how do you experience the communion of saints in terms of renewal and reform? So for Roman Catholics in this period, there were lots of different attempts to renew and to reform the Roman Catholic Church. Now, um, Joseph or Dr. Claire in his lecture uh, a couple of weeks ago talked about how when a church is facing some big moment of discernment in time, oftentimes they will gather all the church leaders, at least they did this in the ancient period, they have done it in the past, and there are still attempts to do it um, in the current day. They'll gather leaders from around the world, they'll bring them together, and they'll have them confer and reflect, study scripture, pray, and basically determine how should we respond to some big moment in time, some big theological set of questions um, or problems or conflicts or something like that. And so the Roman Catholic Church did do that. Um, they established a special council, the Council of Trent, and they sought to address um, some of the corruption that people like Martin Luther noticed, and also some of the things that they thought uh, some appropriate ways for the church to respond to this new modern world. And it included things like condemning the doctrine that people are saved through works, um, encouraging the education of priests, and supporting um, the um, monasteries, especially the mendicant orders. So those are the orders that Father Stephen talked about that were dedicated especially to vows of poverty. So there are lots of efforts, like official efforts um, at reform. And Father Stephen mentioned something in his lecture that I thought would be really helpful to bring back to your attention, which is um, throughout the monastery's history, the monastic life had been a center of revival and renewal and reform. And there were lots of figures in this time period um, that were doing lots of different things all over the world. So there was um, a, a Dutchman, Desiderius Erasmus, who basically um, called for reforms in the church wherein uh, the church would return to its roots, um, and meaning the early church and the scriptures. He recommended uh, scripture reading in the language of the people, not just in scholarly languages. Um, he argued that the clergy priests um, were, were supposed to be educators to share knowledge with common folks. Um, and he did that actually before Martin Luther. So he's a figure that was basically like coming to a lot of the same uh, conclusions that Luther did and in fact influencing a lot of that thought um, some years prior and he remained in the Roman Catholic Church. There are also um, folks in Spain, Ignatius of Loyola uh, was a soldier. He had this radical experience when he was wounded uh, in battle and he, basically uh, created uh, 
a, a new order known as the Society of Jesus, otherwise known as the Jesuits. And he was also known for his spiritual practices. There was a woman named Teresa of Avila um, in Spain. Her writings uh, reflect this intense mystical experience. She reformed uh, the Carmelite nuns and then inspired another guy named John of the Cross, who's a, a really well-known spiritual writer. Um, and these reform efforts were um, a return to the initial objectives of monastic life that include poverty and prayer. Um, and there were reform movements like that um, happening throughout the world. Now, the ones that most of us in this class are the most familiar with probably are um, the Protestant reform efforts. So we talked to, we've talked a lot about Martin Luther, so I'm not going to talk a lot about him, except for the Protestants really, really bring that question of how do you have communion of saints um, to a head? Because uh, Protestants were not in communion. They were not practicing uh, communion with the Roman Catholics. So this idea to be a Protestant is to not be in communion with the Roman Catholic Church. That actually brings that question, that makes that question really important. So people like Martin Luther, um, for example, did not believe in traditional Roman Catholic understandings of communion or the Eucharist, some some of which um, Dr. McCullough talked about last week, but um, Martin Luther still believed that there was something mystical, something really important. The real presence of Christ was present in communion and you could potentially be in communion um, with others. And uh, even if you were not necessarily in communion with the Roman Catholic Church, Martin Luther was somebody who was a part of a tradition of Protestant reformers supported by local leaders. And we, in historical circles, we call that the magisterial reforms. Basically, magisterial is a fancy word um, that, that means supported by the city leaders. So Martin Luther was supported um, by German leaders in his day. And there were other reform movements that were also supported by that. Um, John Calvin, a very, very famous, I'm sure many of you have already heard of him, a very famous theologian and reformer, the father of what we think of as reformed theology. He was a Frenchman who um, did most of his theological, like the famous theological work um, actually in Switzerland in a place called Geneva. And his, his work was also supported by the city leaders. John Calvin um, is known for many things. In fact, he was a really prolific writer. One of the things, one of his most important things that he's known for is this I, his teaching um, in the sovereign grace of Christ. Um, so if you remember from the last couple of lectures, the emphasis on the of the reformers is on this idea that God alone um, is moving human beings toward grace, moving them um, in, toward sainthood. And uh, there were a lot of others, though, who um, started experimenting with these ideas of reform. Um, another well-known one, a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, he actually, um, Zwingli is just a fun word to say. You can say that to yourself um, as well. You can impress your friends with it. Um, but Zwingli, one of his really important teachings um, was also centered around the issue of communion. He was also a magisterial, so he was supported by city leaders in Zurich. Um, and uh, his ideas of communion were super radical. 
basically he's the one um, who most historians credit to giving us this idea that communion, there's nothing necessarily mystical happening in communion. It's the symbolic value. It's this idea that we are experiencing communion, union with God. It is, um, there's nothing fancy about what's happening while um, the priest or pastor is performing the ceremony of communion. It's more of a symbolic act that demonstrates what, what the spirit is doing inwardly. That's probably gonna sound super familiar to many of you students. Um, and we can see the results of Zwingli's work today. There were others though, who went even more radically. So if you think about it, there's the Roman Catholic understandings of communion and what's happening in the act of communion. Dr. McCullough talked a little bit about that. There are Protestant understandings like Martin Luther's real presence. That's still, there's something amazing that's, you know, there's a mystical thing happening there. Zwingli says it's an outward um, act that demonstrates this inward work of the spirit. There were other folks who took um, the sacraments to even more radical places. So for example, a guy um, named Mena Simmons, who, who some uh, or who who his followers were known as Mennonites? Maybe you've heard of them. Um, Mennonites basically argued that the um, Catholic act of baptism, and remember Roman Catholics and also most Reformed traditions um, at this time practiced infant baptism. Um, Mennonites argued that actually that is not um, effective. In fact in order to truly be baptized, you need to have a believer's baptism. You need to be old enough to understand what you're doing. Those people are called Anabaptists because they believe that you needed to be re-baptized in order for baptism um, to be uh, effective and in order for you to be in that communion with the saints. There were also others. There's an entire um, tradition that comes out of England. So England is a really interesting place um, for thinking about the communion of saints because unlike other places in Europe, so um, like for example, Germany, where Lutheranism was really um, well supported and popular, France where most people were Catholics, England is a weird place because in the early modern era, there wasn't necessarily a consensus around whether or not they should be Protestant or Catholic. And so what do you do then? If Should you be Protestant or Catholic? How do you bring communion and union of the saints um, with a group of people who are so divided? In fact, with a group of people who've endured civil war and lots of death and destruction around this issue of what does it mean to, to enjoy the communion of the saints? Enter this thing called the Church of England. So there's a long history involving Henry VIII and there's lots of fun movies and biopics about that. But one I wanna tell you about that's I think really important as it regards the communion of the saints when it comes to the Church of England is um, this development of something called the Book of Common Prayer. Now, some people say that it's the common book of prayer. No, 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 it's the Book of Common Prayer because the book isn't necessarily um, what's common. It's the prayers that are common. The prayers that are held in common between pastors, between lay people, um, across the land of England. So if you have a group of people who are deeply divided um, when it comes to the theology of Roman Catholicism or Protestantism, one way potentially to unite them is not necessarily through theological argument, but through practices, through the act of prayer. So the Book of Common Prayer and the Church of England was an attempt to unify a divided nation 
through these practices. And you can see that in um, Anglican or Episcopal churches today. Uh, one of the groups that, there were lots of groups that dissented from the English um, Reformed Church, the Church of England. And you'll find this throughout histories. Once you start protesting, you kind of don't stop. So there are lots of groups that dissented against um, the Church of England as the years went by. One of them um, became came to be known as the Society of Friends or the Quakers. So we are an institution that is historically Quaker. Um, and there are um, the idea of who can be experiencing communion for the Quakers is a really interesting model. So as you may or may not know, for Friends churches, you don't need a sacrament. You don't need a particular ritual or an act to experience union and communion with Christ and with the saints. In fact, Quakers believe that that is a mystical thing that happens without those uh, rituals. So you can see that in the modern era, there are a lot of big questions about how do we be unified and different uh, figures in different places started wrestling through how do we be unified if we don't necessarily agree on theology, if we don't necessarily agree on which acts or which which uh, readings, which versions of the Bible we should use, how can we be unified? And that's a question that becomes even more important um, in the what, what we now know as the United States, what was known to settlers uh, and colonizers as the new world. And that's what we'll talk about in part three. So there's a lot of fallout in the modern era from these efforts to reform and renew the church. And one of the big questions that keeps coming up again and again and again is how can we say that we believe in the communion of saints but have so much disunity? That question comes up again and again and again when we get to what we now know as the United States. And we're concentrating on that for this lecture because I think that's the context that most of us are the most familiar with. So I want to talk a little bit about unity and disunity in the United States overall over the course of its history. And then I want to talk about one particular moment in time that I think shapes a lot of our own experiences. So we're going to be using several several re-words. Our words were my word of the lecture. And so hopefully this is helpful to you. We're going to talk about efforts to restore, revive, realize, reinvent, reclaim, and receive. So restore. Early in what we now know as the U.S., um, there was, there were a lot of attempts to restore biblical community. So one of the things that Protestants, um, a, a version of Protestant Calvinists known as the Puritans, who were English dissenters and who sought to purify the Church of England, but were shown, as my dad used to say, the left hand of fellowship, basically um, were, were persecuted for their beliefs. Those folks came to the new world 
not to practice religious freedom as later generations argued for, but actually to restore a biblical community. So there's a really interesting history book about this called To Live Ancient Lives. Basically, if you look at the writings of Puritans, what they were hoping to do in the first generation was restore a kind of biblical living that they thought had been lost in their own cultural context. Of course, along the way, um, they found that maintaining this kind of community, a unity, a communion of saints, was actually harder than they thought. There are a lot of weird stories from that era. Um, some of them include like the Salem witch trials, where basically Christians are having a lot of disunity with one another in kind of weird ways. But there are other stories that, like a, a woman named Anne Hutchinson who was kicked out of a Puritan community, which back in those days, that would be basically equal to um, a death sentence because she disagreed with the magistrates. So remember those city leaders that were really important in reform eras? She disagreed with their interpretations of the Bible. So this idea of restoring biblical community, it's still present today. You see a lot of churches who are claiming and attempting to do that, but it's a lot harder than it looks because it's really hard for us to separate ourselves from our own cultural context. There were also efforts to revive ailing forms of American Christianity. So if you've read any um, story about the history of early America, you know about there are a couple events called the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. And these are characterized as moments in time where Americans were looking at themselves and saying like where we would like to be as a church and where we would like to be as a as a body of saints is not where we are right now. And we need to revive the work of the spirit. We need to pray for God to revive us. So big important figures in that era um, include a guy named Jonathan Edwards, a guy named George Whitfield, and later eras, a guy named Charles Finney. And all of them share in common this desire to revive what they, what they think of as a sick and ailing form of Christianity. I think we see that all around today um, and throughout uh, churches in America, you will hear pastors talking about this need to revive and revivalism. There was also a big effort, especially in um, the, the 19th century. So um, if we look at restoring in the Puritans um, and re reviving Christianity in the 16th and 17th centuries, in the 18th uh, and 19th centuries, um, there was an effort to realize the Great Commission. So Americans were really interested in going across the globe and with the idea of spreading the gospel and bringing more saints into communion with one another. Um, that effort to realize the Great Commission has resulted in huge growth of the church in a variety of locations around the world and many of those countries actually trace their heritage to American missionaries. So there was a huge effort in the 19th century. Of course, not everybody agreed um, about what kind of Christianity they should be presenting. So there were some who came from really traditional Baptist congregations who had traditional Baptist teaching. There were some who came eventually from Pentecostal churches with Pentecostal teachings. And you can see those tensions and those conflicts in some cases alive in the church today. There are also efforts to reinvent Christianity um, to meet industrial needs. And that's one that we're going to come back to. But basically, as America was growing and um, becoming a world power, there were a lot of people who were just troubled by how to... Um, experience com uh, the communion of saints in this very modern mechanized city 
citified world, right? Um, and I think that still exists today. We're still struggling. What does it mean to be in an era of tremendous technological growth? Here I am talking to you through a computer screen. Maybe it's on your phone. I'm not sure where you're viewing this, but this is amazing. What does it mean for us to experience communion of saints across space and time. Americans started dealing with that question um, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in new ways because they were experiencing tremendous industrial growth and it was a really exciting and also kind of scary time. There are also efforts to reclaim a biblical version and vision of justice. Now this has happened in many eras in the history of Christianity in America, but I want to bring to your attention something in the 20th century, in the mid 20th century, um, known as the civil rights era. And really important pastors and figures and leaders, people that most of you are familiar with, people like Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he's known as a political leader, but really in his heart and in his writings, you'll see that he was a committed pastor. And he believed that part of his calling, this part of encouraging people to come to communion and union with each other as saints was uh, key to that was reclaiming a biblical vision of justice. If you read something like Letter from a Birmingham Jail, you will see that Dr. King is very interested in what the Bible has to say about justice and about reclaiming that vision. There are also folks that were really interested in experiencing unity and community with one another by receiving the Holy Spirit. So the last R is receive the Holy Spirit. Dr. Edwards talked a little bit about this in her lecture a couple of weeks ago, but receiving the Holy Spirit, um, that has been the priority of many versions of Christianity throughout time. But I want to talk about one that has become really big, and it's the one that I grew up in as well, is the Pentecostal and then charismatic movement. So in the early 20th century and then in the mid to late 20th century, there are these huge booms, revivals um, hosted by people who came to call themselves Pentecostal and then eventually others, charismatics, people who are doing Pentecostal things in other denominations like Lutheran or Baptist or Catholic or whatever. Um, and Pentecostals and Charismatics really emphasize um, experiencing unity and community through mystical experiences with the Spirit. So divine healing. People are familiar with speaking in tongues, but that's not the only thing. Um, receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit in a wide variety, things that Dr. Edwards talked about a couple of weeks ago. So there's a lot of different attempts at experiencing unity, even though there's a lot of distinction. In the United States, we're known actually by scholars of religion as being one of the most religious places in the world, um, but also one of the most um, divided religious places in the world, whether or not it's through race and ethnicity, through economics, gender, um, theology, philosophy, social location, geography, we tend to be a little bit divisive. Um, we tend to like create different versions of Christianity and we've created a lot compared to other uh, parts of the world. So one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is why do we experience this disunity? I want to talk a little bit about one of the, the times in um, the history of Christianity in America that I think shapes us today. And it's something in the early 20th century called the liberal fundamentalist controversy. So remember when I talked about how the early modern world, there are all these different ways of knowing the world and experiencing the world, especially the scientific method, empiricism. Um, in the early 20th century, there were a lot of universities and uh, seminaries teaching the idea that, uh, teaching something called higher criticism, which is basically the scientific study of the Bible. And there were a couple of different responses to that. 
People on the liberal side tended to say, um, or modernist side as it was originally called, tended to argue that if there was something in the Bible that was not provable empirically, so say something like really extraordinary, like the virgin birth, something that's in um, our creed, or creating the world out of nothing, you know, some sort of traditional Christian doctrine, if it couldn't be proven through empirical means, then maybe it needed to be re-evaluated as a core Christian teaching. On the other side, you have groups called the fundamentalists, and sometimes we think of them as conservatives, who argued, no, 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 the Bible um, is a scientifically reliable document. So if there's something that seems implausible, our science hasn't caught up to the plausibility, the actual reality, the factuality of what's happening um, in the biblical story. And these two groups, liberals and conservatives, have been in conflict, big conflict, um, since that controversy in the early 20th century. And I think that we have still inherited that impulse toward disunity today. So where do we go from here? Well, I think one of the things, how can we say that we um, confess the belief in the communion of saints in a very divided world. Well, I want to bring it back to the very beginning um, and to the very essence of um, one of the uh, of the person of God, and that's the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We may be divided according to denominational lines, but through the person of the Holy Spirit, we can experience unity together, brothers and sisters across space and time. I am very struck by that right now in this moment in time because we are living in an era of incredible upheaval. This is something that I didn't expect to experience in my lifetime. I'm sure you didn't either. And it can be very unsettling. In fact, we can sometimes feel like that early modern church, what's happening? It's a very disorienting time. Um, one of the things that is a comfort to me is this belief that we can experience unity uh, through the person of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's function in traditional Christian teaching, as you remember from um, Dr. Gal or Dr. Edwards' lecture, the Spirit provides love, comfort, and uh, power, and also unity. So we may be divided. I think my hope, my prayer is that by confessing the communion of the saints, we invite the Spirit's presence to be with us and to bring us together as one. I think it's no question or no coincidence that the creed starts before we get to the communion of saints. It, we talk about, I believe in the Holy Spirit, because the only way for us to be truly unified with one another is by experiencing that unity in the person of the Spirit. So brothers and sisters, wherever you are, whenever you are viewing this, I believe in the communion of the saints. I believe that we are united across space, across time, across learning platforms through the power of the Spirit.